All right, so we are week six. We're slowly making our way through this. And this is not working. All right, so we're going to talk about an interesting topic this morning, and it's the topic of the cross. And uh, I was telling one of the guys this morning that um, what's really fascinating to me about studying the Reformation is these guys raised up issues that I've never wrestled with for the most part. Now, some of them I've heard, but this one this morning that we're going to look at is one that uh, I don't think I ran across until a year ago when I started actually studying for this series. And it's called the theology of the cross. And um, it's really not talked about a whole lot these days. It's, it's uh, the Lutheran church, obviously, because this comes from Luther, they still teach this and preach this. And if you do a Google search and type in theology of the cross, 99.9% of what you will find will be Lutheran writers. Um, and um, it's, it's an amazing concept. And, and it's not an easy concept, but I think it's one that we need to wrestle with in terms of how do you view life? And, and really what it's going to show us is that we're going to view life through the cross. We're going to view life, our lives, the lives around us, the world around us through the lens of the cross. And this is something that Luther came up with. Um, and one of the things about Luther is he began to wrestle with these concepts. And as he moves along from ni- the 95 Theses on the door, and as the Catholic Church began to resist him, and he was showing up at all these disputations and having to appear before magistrates and appear before uh, cardinals and bishops and, and defend what he was learning from the scriptures, his theology began to deepen um, because he was visiting the scriptures and having to dig in and defend what he thought he believed. Because as he got into the word and he, he saw, well, this is what the scriptures teach about these doctrines. And they resisted him and would say, well, who do you think you are, this obscure German monk that you're standing against thousands of years of church doctrine? Do you think you're smarter than everybody else? And, and of course, Luther was a pretty proud guy, but he had to think, well, am I? Am I that arrogant to think I'm right and everybody else is wrong? And so it drove him back to the scriptures to find out, okay, what, what do the scriptures say? And so we know that in uh, 1517, this month is going to be the anniversary of him nailing those 95 theses. We've kind of touched on that, but we want to go back and see some other things that happened. And one was this disputation against scholastic theology. This was a document that he wrote, and it was actually written earlier, one month earlier than his 95 theses. And it was a document that he wrote that was writing against the primary means of learning in that day, which was scholastic theology. And he was just, once again, just trying to raise some issues and some doubts about what this theology or this way of learning was doing to theology. So he was always thinking, he was always writing. Then in April of 1518, he's going to show up at the Heidelberg Disputation. And so what I want to do is look at these things, because these are going to set up this theology of the cross this morning. So the Heidelberg Disputation was a gathering of Augustinian monks. And really what it was, was it was the church's attempt to let the Augustinians deal with Luther. They were so frustrated with Luther, they didn't know what to do with him. So they went to the Augustinians, which was his order of monks, and they said, you deal with him. You fix this guy and get him to recant all the stuff he's saying in writing. So they had a regular meeting of the monks, the Augustinian monks, And he was asked to come 
to defend his theology. Now, keep in mind, really all he's got so far is that September 1517 writing against the scholastic theology and then his 95 theses. So he hasn't really gone too far yet. So they want him to come and just tell us your theology. And these are all fellow Augustinian monks. And he's going to take ideas that he had written on that disputation against scholastic learning, and he's going to expand it. He's going to say, okay, well, here's what I've written, and I'm going to kind of take that and just go with it. You've asked me to defend my theology. Well, here it is. And so these are a few of the things that he wrote. I haven't really been able to figure out why they love to write um, theses, you know, these one, two, three, four, five, six, but he, he writes another like 44 for this one. And this is number 37. He says, nature, moreover, inwardly and necessarily glories and takes pride in every work, which is apparently and outwardly good. Now, remember, he's expanding what he wrote back in September of 1517. And he's talking to these Augustinian monks and he's telling them, this is my theology and it's a work in process. And he says, It's normal and natural for man to glory, take pride in every work, which is apparently good, outwardly good. It's just normal. Well, you read that, and none of us would disagree with that, right? We would go, yeah, it's natural to kind of glory in whatever you do good. Um, I've had a lot of you guys come up and and, um, say nice things to me about the sermon on Sunday, and I appreciate it, but, you know, if, if I stand there too long and keep hearing that, what happens to your pride? It swells up. And it was inter- interesting on uh, Sunday, after the first two hours, I went home and uh, did what no pastor teacher should ever do, check your emails. And, and so there's, there's some really nice things, and then there's this one email, and it happened to be the longest email of somebody who did not like the sermon at all. And I had to go back and preach the third one. Well, of course, I'm driving to church thinking about what? That one disgruntled individual who happened to be Southern Baptist and thought I threw the Southern Baptist under the bus. Um, and so the whole way to church, I'm thinking, okay, I got to write this guy and I got to defend myself against this guy. And I was really kind of chapped. And then God said, would you just kind of relax and don't worry about it? But pride is natural and normal. He goes on, number 40, we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds. What's that against? Aristotle. Remember, Aristotle is the one, and he greatly influenced scholastic theology of the day. He said that you do become righteous by doing righteous deeds. And so Luther is saying, no, that's not true. But having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. You have to be made righteous by God in order to do righteous deeds. So again, this is his theology kind of evolving. Number 78, the will which is inclined toward the law without the grace of God is so inclined by reason of its own advantage. That was a little wordy. It's a little hard to understand, but he's basically saying your will, my will is inclined towards what? Law keeping. Give me a list of rules to keep. Tell me what I'm supposed to do and you'll do it. And it's, it's your own advantage. I can do this. You know, I have people all the time, guys come up and say, tell me how to fix my marriage. What are they looking for? Six steps, five steps, ideally two steps, um, <laughs> you know, but fix my marriage. Because if you give me two steps, I can, I can keep those two steps. Well, the problem is that that's not going to fix your marriage because your mar- marriage problem is a heart issue. And so this idea that I can do it through my own will, through my own means is huge. 
So at the Heidelberg Disputation, he's, he's going to give, once again, more information, more details, and then he's going to unpack it. So here's, here's what he said at the Heidelberg Disputation. So he goes to these monks, and he gives them all these theses once again. He writes them out, and then he gives explanations. We don't know how this thing worked. We don't know if he went through them bullet by bullet. That would be really boring, but he basically went through a whole bunch of theses. This is number 19. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. Now, here, once again, you got to keep in mind, go back to September of the, the year before, and he's talking about scholastic learning, okay? And he's trying to get them to understand he wasn't a fan of Aristotle. He wasn't a fan of Plato. He didn't like what scholastic learning had done to theology, and so he's kind of refuting it. And he says that a person does not deserve to be called a theologian just because they think they understand the things of God. And, and he's beginning to wrestle with, how do I get to know God? How do I understand God? And it's something we all wrestle with, right? How do I come to know God better? And, of course, he's learning that, well, part of it's going into the Word, studying the Word. And he uses Romans 1.20 as a basis for this thesis, number 19. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, God's qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Now, that's Paul's writing in the very first part of Romans talking about all mankind is guilty before God because he has revealed himself how in nature. We can see him in the stars. We can see him in um, creation. And that's why every people group on the globe has some form of worship of something because they see that there's got to be something that made all of this. And, and so he, he's using this passage and he goes on to verse 21 and 22. He says, yes, they knew God by virtue of creation, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And again, you got to keep in mind, he's slamming scholastic learning that you think you're bright, you think you know God because you've learned from Aristotle and Plato and all these Greek philosophers, you think you have an idea of who God is, you're a fool, you're blind, you don't know because Romans tells us that they look around, they make a God of their own mind and, and it's not the God they're looking for. So once again, he's trying to understand how do we get to know God? And it's not through intelligence and your learning. Number 20, he goes, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering and the cross. Now this is significant because this is really the embryo of this idea of the theology of the cross. And he's beginning to understand that the way you get to know God as a theologian is not through your wisdom, it's not through your learning, it's not looking around and going, well, that's God and that's God. It's through the cross. And he's very specific, the suffering related to the cross. And this will evolve over time and it's going to really change the way he looks at scripture and the way he looks at God. Because what he believed is that men are inherently guilty of trying to make God a slightly improved version of themselves. Okay? And we do it, right? That when we think of power, we think of power from a human perspective. 
And we just think God has a little bit more power than that, or it's power to the nth degree. But we tend to want God to be just a better version of us. And Luther's saying, that's not how God is, and it's also not how God reveals himself. And so this is going to continue to evolve for him over time. He goes on and says, from now on, it could never be enough for a man, nor could it benefit him to know God in his glory and majesty, unless he knows him at the same time in the humility and shame of the cross, that you've got to know him through the cross. That's how God has chosen to reveal himself to man. But man doesn't want that kind of revelation. We want God to reveal himself in miracles, and we want God to reveal himself in uh, impacting our finances or healing our bodies. or We want that kind of revelation of God. And yet Luther's saying, no, God reveals himself the way he chooses to reveal himself. And he chose to reveal himself how? Through the shame of the cross, humility and the shame of the cross. Number 21, he says, a theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. Now, this again, and this is where you're going to have two things that we're going to look at this morning. The theology of the cross as opposed to the theology of glory. And Luther's contention was in his day, and this is why this is so important for us this morning, is in his day, the theology of glory had become the main component of the church. It's all about glory. Well, think about today. It's all about glory. The theology of glory we're going to find out is how we get prosperity gospel. It's all about health, wealth, well-being, success. God wants you healthy, wealthy, and whole. That's the theology of glory taken to the nth degree, taken way over the top. And Luther's saying, no. That's not the way this should be. And he really was struggling with the, the pomp and circumstance associated with the Catholic church and the money and the indulgences and the buildings and the robes and the glory and the kissing of the ring and all the things that he saw with the church. And he said, that's the theology of glory and it calls evil good and good evil. It, it's approving of things that shouldn't be approved of. And that's why he wanted the Catholic church and Leo in particular as the Pope to look closely at what they were doing and realize this is wrong. But no, they were calling evil good and good evil. For as long as man does not know Christ, he does not know God as hidden in suffering. Such a man therefore prefers works to sufferings, glory to a cross, powers to weakness and wisdom to foolishness. And that is so true. It was true then, it's true now. That's why I think this particular doctrine is so pertinent for us today to hear because I know me and I think I know you that you do prefer works to suffering, that you do prefer glory to a cross, power to weakness and wisdom to foolishness. Does anybody enjoy looking like an idiot? Now, some of you are really good at it, but, but you don't necessarily enjoy it. Some of us are, we really love the idea of power, but we don't like weakness. We, we don't like being humbled. We don't like being told we're wrong. We don't like those things. And yet God has chosen to reveal himself to us. How? Through the cross. Through his son coming to earth and taking on human flesh. Number 22, he says, that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man, is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. 
So once again, he's saying that if you think you're the one doing all of this and it's through your works and through your effort and that's how you see God, no, you're blind, you're puffed up, you're delusional, you've missed the whole point, you're not looking in the right place. And so much of this is going back to the idea of works righteousness, that I can get to know God. I actually get to God through my works. And he's saying, no, you don't get to God through your works. You get to God through the works of Christ, which involved what? Death on the cross. And unless you look at that cross, you'll never get there. It reminds me of the story in uh, the Exodus when the people were bitten by the snakes. God sent the poisonous snakes and they got bitten. And you remember that God tells Moses to, to make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick and lift it up. And if the people will look at that, they'll be healed. And as a kid, I always struggled with that story because it sounded like you're making an idol. Make a bronze snake and put it on a stick and hold it up. And if the people will look at the snake, they'll get healed. But it's really a picture of what? Remember Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. It's, it's this idea of you've got to turn from what you've been looking at. And you've got to turn to the solution. And the solution is going to come from God. And what's the solution? The very thing that's biting them. Isn't it interesting that God said, take this, a picture, an image of the snake that's biting you, your very problem, and that's what's going to heal you. What is Jesus on the cross? It's a picture of the very thing that's killing us. It's our sin. It's our enmity with God. It's pictured on the cross. And when you look to the cross and you see that, it reminds you of that's the very thing I deserved. And that's how God has decided to heal us, to restore us. So this idea of glory is Luther more and more begins to hate it. And he's not alone. Every one of the reformers is going to pick up on this theme that you can't glory in yourself. He goes on and says, for since it's clear that they know nothing about the cross and they even hate it, then of necessity, they love the opposite. That is, they love wisdom, glory, power, and the like. He is slamming what he sees in the Catholic church. They don't love the cross. They may wear one. They may carry one. They may have them in their services and in their churches. But what they really love is wisdom, glory, power, and the like. They love the pomp and circumstance. It's not unlike the Pharisees who loved to be recognized and they wanted to be in the best seat of the house and they wanted people to know that they were special and that they were religious and that they were spiritual and godly, and, but they were not humble and they wouldn't serve the people. And Jesus would slam the Pharisees regularly about those things. So here's this guy And his theology is evolving. He's studying the scriptures. He's writing things down. He's having to defend them. And when you defend what you believe, what happens? People resist. You know, it's been so fun to watch you guys read some of these articles and wrestle with some of the things that we're wrestling with. As a matter of fact, Thursday night, last Thursday night, uh, I had a, there's a lady who comes, her husband goes to the um, Bible study. Instead of going to women in the Word, she sits in the lobby and she listens to me teach. And so she's sitting out there. I finish the lecture. I go out into the lobby. The men are having their discussion time. And she makes a beeline to me. She goes, those two articles. You know those two articles? They almost destroyed my home. And I'm like, why? And she goes, well, we can't agree. And if you recall those two articles, one was written on uh, by a reform guy talking about faith coming from God. The other DTS guy saying 
faith is not a gift of God. It's, it's you bring that to the table. And I just wanted you to read those and wrestle with them. And well, they did. And she said, I said, well, what's, what's the issue? She goes, well, I'm right. And he's wrong. <laughs> and I said, well, why are you right? And she goes, well, because of what I know and what I believe. And I said, well, what is it you believe? She goes, well, I think we bring faith to the table. That's our choice. I said, well, what passage do you base that on? Well, I just, it's what I believe. And I said, well, what's your background? She goes, primitive Baptist. And I said, okay, I know where you base it on. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. And I said, but why do you feel so strongly? She goes, well, I call my former pastor. The primitive Baptist former pastor? And she goes, yeah. And I said, so were you surprised by what he told you? Well, no. I said, have you called a reform pastor? Well, no, I don't know any. I said, okay, so this is what we need to deal with. And he comes out after, after the discussion time, and he goes, we got to talk about this. this. These two articles, is she right or am I right? And I said, you know, this isn't a matter of who's right. It's that what I love is that have you both spent time in the Word? Oh, yeah, we've been in the Word like all week. And I said, that's the point. Get in the Word. Wrestle with these things. And Luther and these reformers are, are just addicted to the Word because they're like, I think I know, but I'm not sure. Well, where do you go to find out? Do you call your ex-pastor? Fine, but you're probably going to hear what you want to hear. Wrestle with these things. That's what Luther was doing. That's what all of them were doing. And what he wanted to know is, how do I get to know God? He's already kind of wrestled with, how do I get right with God? You know, justification through Christ. But now he wants to know, how do I get to really know God? How do I develop a relationship with him? And it's not through creation that's not going to be enough. It's not through these spiritual experiences that you think you have, and it's not going to be through just miracles. Remember all the people that followed Jesus and wanted him to do miracles? And he goes, you know, all you want is another meal. All you're looking for is signs, but you're really not here for me. You're here for what I can do for you. And, and really, that's the picture that some of us need to wrestle with is, is what do you want from God? Do you want God or do you want what you think you can get from God? And, and I think in my life, too much of my relationship with God has been based on what I think he might or could do for me instead of I want to be with him. I want to know him. I want a relationship with him. See, Luther's going to say none of these things are enough if you don't go to the cross, if you don't go to the source, and they just produce pride, but they don't produce intimacy with him. You know, you can go to the Grand Canyon and you can look over the edge of the Grand Canyon and you can ooh and ah and wonder and, and be in awe about God, but it doesn't draw you close to God. It doesn't give you a relationship with God. It may convince you there is one, but it won't make you close to him and it won't make you right with him. And you can ooh and ah and you can take pictures and you can talk about the wonders of the creation, but it does not bring you into a relationship with the creator. And that's his point. So 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe, Paul says. And this is his problem with scholasticism, knowledge, going back to Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and all these guys. He said, you'll never know God through human wisdom. It's, it's not how this thing works. And yet we're so prideful that we think that I can figure this out. 
That's why I, I have uh, an older brother who um, used to be a pastor, is no longer a pastor. I don't believe he's a believer. I don't think he ever was a believer, even though he went to seminary. He's just incredibly intelligent. And he knew everything there was to know about theology and everything there was to know about Hebrew and Greek. He just didn't know the God behind theology. And so he left the church and he no longer darkens the door of a church and he doesn't want a relationship with God. He doesn't want a relationship with Christ. And so intelligence isn't the key here. And it doesn't mean we have to put our brains in park, but if we think we're going to find God and have a relationship with God through our intelligence, Luther's going to tell you, no, it's not going to happen. It won't happen through human wisdom. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, Paul says in Colossians. You want to know God? Christ. That's how you do it. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. How did God choose to make himself known? Well, you can go back to the Old Testament. He did it through a burning bush. He did it through a cloud. He did it through the burnt, uh, you know, a, a pillar of fire. He did it a lot of different ways, but the way he now is, has done it is through his son. He has made him known. He's revealed him. Second Corinthians, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of what? He's the image of God. So if you want to know God, you're going to have to know him through his son. He is the image, the likeness. He is God in human flesh. And, and, and part of what we're dealing with here is that the way God has chosen to do this makes no sense in the world. And, and most unbelievers struggle with what? You're telling me that God became a man and then allowed himself to be killed and then he rose again, and now he's ascended on high, and someday he's coming back. That's what you believe? And when you hear him say it back to you, you go, yeah, I, yeah, that, yeah, that's what I believe. That's kind of weird, isn't it? That's, uh, it is weird. It's bizarre. But that's how God has chosen to do it. And so he comes up with this thing called Theologia Crucis, the theology of the cross. God has chosen to make himself known in a very contrary way, a way that nobody would expect. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ came to this young girl, obscure girl in an obscure town, and it's not what anybody expected. Nobody expected the Messiah to come the way he came. The Jews expected him. They just didn't expect him the way he came. He came in a hidden way. See, if I was God and I was going to send my son to earth, how would I have done it? Pomp, circumstance, power, glory, white horse, angels, trumpets, everybody sees it, everybody worships. Here's how did God do it? Bethlehem, virgin, unknown, obscure. Nobody really knew it was happening. Everybody overlooked it because God's invisible attributes are revealed differently than we would like them to be revealed or we expect them to be revealed. How did he do it? Through suffering in the cross. God came to earth, took on human flesh, and died on a cross. He, he got his glory through shame. He got his wisdom. He exposed his wisdom. God shows his wisdom how in folly. It's foolishness. He shows his power how in weakness. Here's Jesus 
the Son of God allowing himself to be nailed to a cross, and what were the people shouting at him? Hey, if you're the Son of God, call down angels. Come down off the cross. Then we'll believe. See, they wanted glory then. But what had to happen before glory? Death. He had to give up his life. Victory through what? Through defeat. Now, it's easy for us to look at these and go, well, okay, I get that for the cross, but I just don't want that in my life. It's okay, Jesus had to do that, but just don't put that onto me. But what Luther and the reformers are going to tell you is this is your life. This is my life. This is how we should approach coming to know God. It's going to be through our suffering, through our pain, not through glory. I love this passage in Philippians where Paul tells us, I become righteous through faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Just stop there. Great? Don't you love it? Yeah, I want to know the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Bring it on. I want power in my life. I want power over disease. I want power over uh, debt. I want power over misery. I want power over everything, but it doesn't stop there. And this is where we bog down with Paul. I want to suffer with him sharing in his death. What? I want the power, but I want to suffer with him sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying, I want the power, but you know what? I want the suffering that comes with it. Because the suffering of Jesus was followed up by what? The power of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead and then placed him at the right hand of God. See, Paul's smart enough to know that you don't get the glory without the humiliation. You don't get the glory without the suffering. You don't get the crown without the cross. You don't get an empty tomb. And don't we love Easter? But you don't get an empty tomb without what? An empty cross. A blood-stained cross. He had to die before he was glorified. So I become righteous through faith, he says, I come to know God through the cross, faith in the cross, faith in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key. It's Jesus crucified. It's Jesus as the payment for my sins and your sins. His death paid my sin debt. And if you don't believe that, you are not a believer. You may be religious, you may be uh, all kinds of things, but you're not a believer because you don't believe that he paid your sin debt, that he took your sin and you got his righteousness. See, that's what faith is in and about. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. And because of that, I now have access to the Father. I'm driving here this morning, and I'm, I'm praying to the Father. Why do I have that right? Through Jesus Christ. Because he died, and because he rose again, because he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for me. But I can talk directly to God because of what Jesus Christ did. I have a relationship with God, and I'm able to communicate with God and hear from God because of what Jesus Christ did, because of the cross. And the cross, for many of us, is something we want to leave behind us, and we want to move forward. But you can never forget the cross, because the cross is the means by which we have access to the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But how do we come to him at the cross, at the foot of the cross? And again, that's not something we like to think about. It's not something we like to dwell on. Every year here at Christ Chapel, when we have our Easter, we, we celebrate Easter, but we always have the Friday night tenebrae service, the darkening. 
And it's, if you've never been, you need to go. It's, it's a powerful representation of all the things that led up to the death of Christ. And if you don't understand the death of Christ, you'll never glory in the resurrection of Christ. It's like, if you don't understand a man's depravity, you're going to never understand the grace of God. And so this idea of coming to him through the cross is huge to these reformers. Ephesians 2.18, now all of us come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. What did Christ do? He came, he died, he bore our sins. Alistair McGrath says this, for Luther, the righteousness of God is revealed exclusively in the cross, contradicting human preconceptions and expectations of the form that revelation could take. See, if we were going to come up with a plan for man's salvation, it would never have involved a cross. It just doesn't make sense that we're going to ask God to die. We're going to ask God to take on human flesh and come and be humiliated by humans, the people he created, we would never have come up with that plan because it's contrary to the way we think. It's against human wisdom. So the, the theology of glory is just the opposite, though. It looks to avoid suffering and sacrifice and takes victories, accomplishments, and political and social stature to be signs of God's favor. Haven't you ever thought that in your life when something good happens? Wow, God, thank you for that. And you should thank God for those good things. But what happens is anything good in our lives has come from God and is a blessing. Anything negative, either God's punishing me or I got to get rid of it as soon as possible. I got to get out of this. And yet, if you look back in your life, how many times has that seemingly negative thing been the most beneficial thing in your life for your spiritual growth? I read an article this week about this whole topic, and it was uh, written by a Lutheran pastor whose wife came down with cancer. And um, they were talking about prayer, and she had read an article that had come out in the local paper talking about seven steps to a better prayer life. And, and she read it, and she, it frustrated her so much, and she said, you want to know how to have a better prayer life? Get cancer. And that statement just rocked me. And she wasn't being facetious and she wasn't being angry. She was just saying, you want to know how to pray? Have something to pray about. Have cancer. And that drove her to the cross. That drove her to a relationship with God. But we want victories. We don't want cancer. We don't want trouble. We don't want anything to go wrong in our perfect little world. And yet that's the theology of glory, not the cross. See, suffering, when you have this theology of glory, seems out of place. I shouldn't have to suffer. It's okay if you suffer. I'll pray for you, but I, I don't deserve it. And I've got to get out of it at all costs. I've got to fix this. I've got to get out of this. I've got to escape this. And it demands a life of ease. My life should be easy. My life should not be hard. That's how we sometimes share the gospel. Come to faith in Christ, your life is going to get better. And then people get hacked. Because come to faith in Christ and suddenly the world gets worse. Because that's not the theology of the cross. That's the theology of glory. God's pleasure with us shows up in the form of blessings. This was the problem the Jews had in Jesus' day. Lord, who sinned? That guy's blind. Who sinned? Him or his parents? That's a theology of glory. Somebody sinned. Otherwise, that guy wouldn't be blind. If somebody was poor, they had sinned. If somebody was ill, they had sinned. It was the theology of glory. If you're blessed, you have God's hand on you. If you're not, then God's angry at you. It's a theology of glory. Loss and pain are signs of God's displeasure. 
I guarantee if you go today and you hit, hit the work and they, you find a pink slip in your box or everything in your office is put in boxes for you, you will think, what happened here? What did I do wrong? Some, why is God angry at me? He's displeased with me because it's not what you expect. It's not what I expect. So the Christian life becomes success-oriented and paints a distorted view of God. I have a God who wants nothing for me but good. And yet Jesus had to come and die on the cross? Jesus had to suffer? Yes. So you want to know God? Well, the theologians of glory, Carl Truman says, are those who build their theology in the light of what they expect God to be like. And surprise, surprise, they make God to look something like themselves. Hey, God, bless me because that's what I would do. Hey, God, give me health because that's what I want. You spend and I spend the majority of my day trying to make my life what? Comfortable. And so what do I expect of God? He exists to make my life comfortable. I try to make my life as easy as possible. And anything that comes into my life that makes that task hard, I reject. And yet God brings into my life oftentimes things that are meant to make me draw closer to him through suffering, through need, through pain, and I reject it. And that's the theology of glory. So Luther had these three ways that he loved to study the scriptures, and he didn't come up with this. And there are three Latin words, oratio, meditatio, and tentatio, prayer, meditation, and trials. And he got this from reading the Psalms. Remember, he was a lecturer on the Psalms. And he saw in the life of David these things, prayer, meditation, and trials. I never would have picked the third one. You go back and read the life of David, and this guy had trials. And you know what's fascinating about David is that David was anointed the king of Israel. You're going to be the next king. I'm going to anoint you through the prophet. And then he's going to spend the next three or four years of his life doing what? Running for his life. Humiliation, <laughs> defeat, agony, loss, long before he ever wore the crown. See, I think that is a picture of my life and your life on this planet. You ever wondered why God saved you and didn't take you, but he left you here? Why did God anoint David and not make him king at that very moment? Because he had something he wanted to do in David's life. He wanted David to learn dependency upon God. He was in God's remedial school for kingly training. And that's where you and I are. On this earth, we will suffer. We will have trials. And they're the way you really learn about God. Do I like it? No. Do I pray for trials? No. But here's David. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted. He's talking about the affliction that God brought into his life. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. What's he saying? It's the affliction that drove me to your statutes that drove me to your word, that drove me to listen to you. I know, O oh Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, some of you guys are going through some really tough times. Your, your spouse may be ill and going through uh, illness. You may have financial difficulties and, and you wonder, Lord, what are you doing? And the best question you can ask is, Lord, what are you trying to teach me about you through this? Because the goal, guys, is to know him, not escape your suffering. You could escape your suffering, but you'll miss knowing him. 
So David spent years going through these kinds of trials and efforts, and he says, it is good that you have afflicted me because now I know you better. It's often trials that move knowledge from our heads and embed it in our hearts. I know more about God now through suffering than I ever known it just by reading the scriptures. It's amazing how suffering, like that woman said, you want to learn how to pray, get cancer. You want to learn how to trust in God, have a problem where you have to turn it over to him. But as long as you and I have a trick up our sleeve and another option we can come up with, guess what? You don't need God. You're God. And so God allows into our lives and brings into our lives these sufferings that teach us to trust on him. So Paul says this to the Jews or to the Corinthians about the Jews. When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. They don't like it. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. It's foolishness. Jesus Christ took on human flesh, died for the sins of man. That's foolishness. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. The, this is contrary to the way we think, but it's the way God's work. It's nonsense. And there's a song, you may have heard it, and it's, uh, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but it's, it's, I think Mercy Me sang it, but here's the lyrics. This is Joseph, the father of Jesus, technically, it was God who was his father, but Joseph and Mary, he says, why me? I'm just a simple man of trade. Why him, Jesus, with all the rulers of the world? Why here inside this stable filled with hay? Why her, Mary? She's just an ordinary girl. Now I'm not the one to second guess what angels have to say, but this is a strange way to save the world. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Bethlehem, manger, this is weird. This is foolish. This is nonsense, but it's how God has chosen to do it. And so when you come up against trials in your life, you can say, this is foolish. This is nonsense. This is not the way it should be. This is not what I bought into, but it is because this is the way God works. Listen to this from Carl Truman. This is a little long, but it's worth listening to. Take, for example, his, his Luther's understanding of justification, whereby God declares the believer to be righteous in his sight, not by virtue of any intrinsic righteousness, anything you've done, but on the basis of an alien righteousness outside of you, the righteousness of Christ, that remains external. Is this not typical of the strange but wonderful logic of the God of the cross? He never does it our way. He never does it in a logical way, in a way that we could come up with because it's not based on human wisdom. It's based on the wisdom of God. It's always contrary. Jesus said, if, you, if, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. And when he said this, what happened to the majority of his followers? Whoa. Take up a what? Nice knowing you. And they began to leave in droves because it involves self-sacrifice, doing without so you can do unto others. But see, we come to Christ and we, it's all about us. We come to the Bible and what's it all about? It's all about us. That's why I can't stand when, when anybody refers to this as a blueprint for living and I wanna vomit. It's not your blueprint for living. It's not your roadmap for life. This is the revelation of God. It's to know God. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about suffering, dying to your rights. It's about submission, submitting your will to his. It's about service, meeting the needs of others first. This is what 
following Christ is all about. It's what he modeled. It's what he lived. It's the theology of the cross. And one of the things Luther was always putting up was the church, the Catholic church and Jesus, the Pope and Jesus. And this, this is a perfect image of it. The Pope having his foot kissed by the king and Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. This is glory and cross juxtaposed. And this is what we see even in our context today, even within the church, if we're not careful. So the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. The writer of Hebrews says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially that sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. See, we have a race to run. There is a finish to this. There will be suffering. If you've ever run a race, if you've ever run a marathon, half marathon, it is painful. It is grueling. And everything in you wants to stop. And it's, your brain is going, why are you doing this? But there's a finish. There's a completion, there's glory, but you don't get to the finish line without going through what? The pain, the suffering, the hurt, the heartache, the doubt, the wanting to quit, but you keep on going. Why? Because you're focused on the cross and the finish, what Jesus has done. So we keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not given your lives in your struggle against sin. Is this life hard? Yes. Is it difficult? Are there trials, tribulations? Yes. But you have not been asked to give up your life like he did. You've just been asked to die to self. And don't give up because look what he endured. Look what he was willing to do for you and I. So Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. That's what the theology of the cross is all about. Have the attitude of Christ, Paul tells us. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on a cross. And then what happened? God elevated him. Gave him the name above all of their names, but he had to do the cross first. See, our problem is we want glory now. We don't want to serve in humility. We don't want to humble ourselves. As Peter says, we want to be lifted up in honor now. But you got to go through the cross first. You got to go through the loss first. So these are in your notes, but these are just two comparisons of glory and the cross and if you get a chance, go look at these. They're polar opposites. Luther saw it. The other reformers saw it. And we have to see it in our lives. We are not theologians of glory. We're theologians of the cross. And Paul says, we have the privilege of suffering with him. The privilege of suffering with him. So here's your discussion points for this morning. I want you to honestly share how the thought of sharing in Christ's suffering strikes you. Please be honest. Just go, man, that, that's like so distasteful. I want nothing to do with it. I don't want to suffer. Be honest. Talk about it. Read Philippians 3, 10 through 11 again. What do you think Paul means when he says he wants to suffer with Christ in his death? What would that look like for you today? How would you suffer in his death today? And then finally, in what ways has the modern church bought into a theology of glory and how does it show up in its preaching and teaching? Why is this dangerous to the health of the body of Christ? 
And if you want to use that little list, the comparison, to help you see it, see it and discuss it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these guys. Thank you for their patience. I pray that this discussion will be rich and beneficial, eye-opening and encouraging at the same time. Father, may we become men who are theologians of the cross. We see life through the cross. We see suffering through the cross, that no suffering is wasted, that you are constantly perfecting us, molding us, and making us into the likeness of your son so that we may know you and fellowship with you and understand you because you've chosen to reveal yourself through the cross and the death of your son. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.